I see investing as a form of activism. Are you ready to be the change you want to see in the world? Are you ready to make choices that have a positive impact on your daily life, your community, and the planet? You are in the right place. I'm Anne-Therese Gennari. And I'm Robin Shaw. And this is the Hate Change Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to Hey Change. Today we actually have a very special episode, something we haven't done before. We are going to share two conversations with you, with two amazing women that we had the honor to speak with and help us shift the narrative on business and money. We'll be talking about impact investing and how we can be creative when it comes to starting businesses, not only to solve a problem, but also how to support a more sustainable world. And that is something that Robin and I have actually been thinking about a lot on our own and talking about on our calls, but how do we shift the narrative and change the stories that we tell ourselves about money and about businesses to one that's actually really beautiful and empowering. Yeah, I don't know about you, Antaris, or our listeners, but I definitely have come to recognize that I've had a certain relationship to money that is not necessarily positive. And this is a great opportunity for us to rethink what our own relationship to money is, how we create in the world, whether it's through business or other things that we're doing, and how money really is a tool rather than something that's negative or bad or, you know, just driving capitalism without any, you know, moral guards. Money can be used to create a lot of positive change. And so these two conversations, I find them very inspiring and I'm really excited to share them with you today. And so what we decided to do is actually to just pick some snippets, our favorite parts of these two conversations and make them into one episode. So we will be coming back in between and uh, navigate this conversation. And we hope that you get a lot of value, a lot of new insights and many opportunities to kind of question what your thoughts about money are and what kind of impact you want to make in the world towards yourself and your family, but also to society, to the planet, to our future. So we hope you feel empowered and excited and um, optimistic leaving this conversation. So first up, we're going to share our conversation with Rebecca Orlovitz David. She is an impact investing expert and the founder of the platform GIF. Hi, Rebecca. We are so excited to have you on Hey Change podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I must say, it's so great to speak to a woman in this space. It's just, you know, it's so empowering in so many different ways. So can you please share your journey with us of why you chose a path in finance? What made you decide to help people with impact investing? Yeah. So I started my career, I studied finance in school and I started my career in very traditional finance at a big bank. And at the same time, I joined the junior board of UNICEF and I quickly realized that there was an opportunity to use investments for good and to solve problems. And, you know, it was early days for impact investing coming mainstream. So I was lucky to kind of get in when I did and um, 
have spent my career um, in impact investing as an impact investing advisor. And I just see our investments as some of the best tools that we have, you know, to uh, vote for the world that we want to live in and to, to make that world. So let's get real about money because in the five years since the Paris Agreement, the world's 60 biggest banks have financed fossil fuels to the tune of $3.8 trillion. Runaway funding for fossil fuel extraction and infrastructure fuels climate chaos and threatens the lives and livelihoods of millions of people. And these are stats taken from the Banking on Climate Chaos, which is a report by the Rainforest Action Network that they come out with every single year. This is so ludicrous. And I think it's just crazy that we still are allowing this to happen. So can you give us some more insights into like why so much money is going into the fossil fuel industry? Yeah, you know, I think that where we have alternative sources of energy, but we are a long way from transitioning away from fossil fuels. So as long as we are still using fossil fuels to power our world, we are continuing to invest in them. And I think that most people don't realize, you know, even with something as small as where they bank um, can make such a huge difference um, in, in funding uh, the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, so- I am. Um, oh, go ahead, entries. I was just going to say, you may have seen hashtags like stop the money pipeline and uh, divest from fossil fuels. And really what they're saying is that you just, it's just bringing awareness to where we're putting our money and what the banks, where we put our money is actually doing with that. So we'll come back to that soon. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of resources now for how to find better banks and, you know, to make sure that your, your bank is not um, financing things that you don't agree with, with your money. I think a lot of people don't realize where their money goes. I mean, I know for myself, like I was really surprised to learn about what like Chase was or is um, investing in. And so it's, it's, um, it's easier not to know in some ways, I hate to say, but it's really important that we investigate what our banks and what our investments are funding. Um, One of the questions that I have for you is what's the difference between stakeholder and shareholder economy? Yeah. So business has traditionally been thought of in terms of shareholders and the purpose of business. There was this famous economist, Milton Friedman, that the sole purpose of business, he said, was to make money for shareholders. And that theory is really, we've shown is not true. Um, and, it, and it doesn't work um, in today's world, especially. And we've transitioned to this stakeholder economy where businesses have to consider all stakeholders. And this includes the environment, their customers, their suppliers, their supply chains, their employees. And it's with this broader lens on the impact uh you know, of business on society as a whole, um, in which we view businesses now. And because there are externalities to business, and it often, so let's say that a business pollutes, it will cost more for that business to clean up the pollution than just the normal operations and making a donation. So 
business as usual, you know, we say it doesn't work any longer. And now we have to consider all stakeholders in business. Did it ever really work? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, um, it's gotten us into a lot of issues for sure. Um, But I think that there is a new pathway forward that um, many people and many businesses are are finding. And so it's hopeful. Yeah. And just to give an example of how this can be holding us back, uh, let's say, for example, that a company needs to be able to show quarterly to their um, shareholders that they're making more money for them. They might want to invest in new technology and innovation that could actually be better for the environment and their people working there and like making all those bold steps. But if they can't show their shareholders that they're making continuously new profit for them every single quarter, and especially if it's going to take them a couple of years, you know, that's why are they being held back. So even if the company may want to make these changes, a shareholder economy will not enable them to. And so that's why this transition into more of a stakeholder economy, we're like, it's not just about making more money for the shareholders. It's also about taking care of the shareholders' future children, right? And like their futures and the environment around us. So looking at business from a different lens and also understanding that businesses play such an important part uh, and beautiful part actually in the world that we're creating all around us. And so I think it's, it's so incredible that we're seeing this shift. So then I brought up at that point ESG criteria and I wanted to know more about it because I honestly didn't know what that even stood for. So I learned that ESG stands for environment, social and governance and businesses investors can use this criteria to assess a company's impact on the environment. So think like water usage, waste, emissions, as well as social criteria things like fair wages, human rights, diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as governance. So criteria like political contributions, board composition, how a company is governed. So here's what Rebecca had to say about why companies should set ESG goals for the longevity of the company. What we found is that this using environmental social governance criteria is actually a better way to invest. One analyst from, I think, Bank of America actually said that um, ESG criteria is the best way to predict a company's future earnings. Um, So kind of what you said before, because companies are forced to, or forced, that's a strong word, um, but have to report on a quarterly basis, it prioritizes that short-term view instead of what's best for shareholders over the long-term and for society over the long-term, but actually using ESG criteria um, allows us to make uh, better decisions as investors and gives companies an understanding of their impact as a whole in the world. So would you say that ESG incentives have kind of softened that quarterly report earnings? You know what I'm saying? Like, has that helped with people understanding that there are bigger and more important goals to strive for? Well, it depends who the investor is and what they're looking for and at. But if you're just investing quarter to quarter, and this is also kind of being an impact investor, you usually have, it's called like patient capital. So you have a longer term view and outlook 
if you're someone who is a day trader in and out and trying to time the market and things like that, you are less likely to be focused on the long term. Um, and so it really depends on the investor on the investor and what their goals are. Um, but you know, there definitely has been pushback against quarterly um, reporting. It, it's just the way of the world and how things work for now. Um, but ESG criteria certainly gives us more insight into those numbers. Are a lot of companies using that ESG criteria or is that something that's like still, there's only a few companies that have adopted that? Yeah, I mean, sustainability, I think I read an article was um, mentioned within 20% of quarterly earnings calls. So sustainability as a whole is becoming a focus for companies. And, you know, there definitely is a range of where companies are on the spectrum in terms of uh, thinking about sustainability or reporting on it or things like that. But, you know, we see it every day that sustainability is coming mainstream um, into kind of everything we do, you know, how we shop and what we buy and just how we conduct our lives. Yeah. And I also want to like shout out to everybody who's making a noise about sustainability and regenerative practices and who's out there, you know, having those conversations and their families and their communities at your place of work. It's those conversations that put pressure on larger, you know, whether it's government or corporations to take note of what the people are talking about. And it, it behooves them to listen to what consumers are asking for, which is those more, you know, sustainable options, uh, more ethical options. So I just wanted to give a shout out to all our people out there who are making that noise. <laughs> um, I, the one thing though, before we move on, Robin, because this yeah. just kind of came to me, I think it's important because we just had the TED countdown event happening over in Europe and there was some drama, if you would put it that way, because there were some big oil companies that wanted to be on stage. And I also just read this really interesting newsletter. It's called Heated. And they have been pointing out or calling out ExxonMobil and other big oil companies for taking up ad space, claiming that they're trying to be carbon neutral and all these things. And it's kind of misleading, obviously, because if you're an oil company and you invest in fossil fuels and trying to expand your, your, your market, just because just that you're trying to do something small and then claiming that is like your center stage, it's very misleading. So uh, I just kind of wanted to like, plug that too, that as the ESG goals are becoming more and more prominent and people are talking about them to make sure that we also call out companies who are trying to greenwash uh, using these terms, right? Yeah, totally. And, and also just one more thing on that as well as one of the things that we've been talking about in recent conversations as, as well, um, you know, and here with you as well, Rebecca, thank you, is, um, is this idea of on the one hand, I'm, so this is what I'm learning. It seems like on the one hand, you have these large corporations who are taking advantage of all this talk about sustainability and participating in greenwashing. But on the other hand, they also have the capital to invest in things. You know, large corporations do have the capital to invest in sustainable solutions. And so for us as consumers, one of the things that I like to look at too, and Therese is like, and this is, uh, this is not a, you know, a, a debate or like someone's right and wrong. It's more of a yes and, and how do we look at this and how do we broaden our perspective is 
what is the time frame of transition that we're willing to tolerate this kind of, you know, this messiness of corporations on the one hand, continuing to invest in fossil fuels, and on the other hand, starting to do these green initiatives. Um, or if it's in the case of fashion, you know, continuing to have like way too many pieces that they're putting out each season versus, you know, putting out pieces that are more sustainably and ethically made. What is the time of transition that we're willing to tolerate until we hold them accountable and say, this cannot, we, we do not stand for this anymore. And for some of us, that time has already come. We do not stand for this anymore. For other people, it may be like, you know what, I'm willing to give these corporations a certain amount of time to pivot, but we need to have goals that we're still working towards. So just these are things that have come up for me, Rebecca, that I'm like learning about of how business operates. Um, I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on that as well. Yeah, you know, I mean, look, greenwashing certainly does exist, but I think that companies are kind of like people and there's some good and there's some bad in there and impact is gray. And it's a personal choice kind of where, um, where you want to fall and where you want your dollars to go. But it's difficult to say, you know, this is sustainable in every single way and, you know, fits with my, with my values and this does not. It is more of a gray area. And so it's a learning process for all of us. Um, and it's constantly evolving. You know, these businesses are evolving every day. And I think we're all just trying to do our best to make choices that fit, you know, within our value system. Totally. Yeah. It's a lot of gray area. That's like life. The vast majority <laughs> yeah. of life is not binary. It's not black and white. It's a lot of gray. <laughs> yeah. After this, we went on to talk about shareholder advocacy and how shareholders can use their voice in order to enact change within a company. And here is what Rebecca had to say about how we can use impact investing to create change. So with impact investing, you know, there's different ways to go about it. So you might choose to divest from what you don't believe in, or you might choose to, you know, hold a company so that you can be uh, part of shareholder engagement. And advocacy. And whether we are new to investing or want to change up how we invest, here's what Rebecca suggests. Starting with where you bank, for sure, is, is step one. And then, you know, with any kind of investing you do, you want to make sure that it is appropriate for you. So you want to understand what your financial goals are and, you know, take stock of your finance, current financial situation. And get a better understanding of what your, your values are so that when you go to invest, you have kind of a roadmap, you know, that you're working with a framework um, to help you make decisions. Because obviously investing is a big world and there's all kinds of options. And so when you take what is appropriate for you um, and your goals, the asset classes that, you know, you might be considering and then you take the impact that you're looking to have kind of narrows down that universe that you might be looking at and to say, helps you make decisions. So you want to approach it, you know, from um, not only that impact standpoint, but also making sure, you know, that you're making sound decisions as, you know, an investor as well. If you're using any kind of advisor, whether it's a robo advisor or a traditional financial advisor, 
you want to then understand what impact investing means to them and what they're actually investing in to see if it really aligns with what you're thinking. That's such a good point to make sure that you're on the same page that not if you're using the same term, it might mean different things to different people. Um, And yeah. And it's also really nice to just be reminded that there's options for everybody that whether you, you know, have a lot of investments and, you know, maybe the power for you is in divesting. Um, Or if you're new to the game, that there's options for you to start small and keep going. Um, Do you see impact investing as a form of activism? I see investing as a form of activism. Mm. I mean, I think every dollar we spend or invest has an impact. It's just a matter of being intentional about the impact that we're having. Yeah, it's really that intentionality that kind of makes anything, you know, a form of activism. Such yes, an empowering thought, right? It's like, it's. I also love every time we talk to a guest and it's. it doesn't start with changing the world or fighting climate change. It's like, let's start with making money. <laughs> you know, how can I empower myself and my family? And then it's like, and in doing so, we're making an impact. And in doing so, we're helping fuel climate solutions. And, you know, like, it's always like the, the end of it comes in with all the, the positivity but it starts with very simple things like, you know, I, I want to make money and I want to secure my future and I want to get more in control of that. And you can do so. And at the same time, leave a positive footprint, which to me is just such an empowering thought. Rebecca went on to remind us that capitalism doesn't have to be a bad word and money isn't bad, it's a tool. Something that my husband Justin and I have been talking a lot about recently is that money is just another form of energy. I'm going to say that one more time because I found this so profound when I learned this myself. Money is another form of energy. It's a channel. There's this book that Jess and I are obsessed with. It's called The Abundance Project by Derek Rydell. And we've learned so much from the content in this book. We've been able to uncover unconscious shadows around money, and we live a much more abundant life in a much deeper way than we ever have before after doing the reading and the exercises in this book. So money is a tool for abundance. Rebecca shared a few resources that we will link in the show notes, including Calvert for responsible investing and engagement, C-Note to help support underserved communities in the U.S., and Kiva for loans that change lives in underserved communities around the world. And one of the things that I've learned is that the more you want to get, the more you have to give. So these are wonderful opportunities to keep the flow of energy and the flow of money circulating in your life. One of the things I remember you mentioning is that you use an app called Republic. Is that right? Yes. So I was introduced to Republic, I think last year, and it's a private investing platform for investors seeking high growth potential. So basically what you do is that you invest in very early stage companies. And what's cool about it to me is that you can search by category and interest. So let's say I want to be protecting the environment. They will show you companies that are working for that. Um, and you can become a very early investors and potentially make a lot of money because if this company takes off, you're there very early on. So 
it's really cool in the sense where you can find really good investment opportunities, but also the fact that you can fund the transition to a better world. Because if you find a company that you really believe in, like me, for example, I found this company um, doing kelp farming and they use kelp to create a very healthy and sustainable plant-based burger solution. Um, cool. And so by being able, yeah, it's so cool. And being able to invest in them early on and help them on their mission, it just feels good. You know, you feel so empowered. You're like, I'm using my money to fund the transition to a much better world. And there's this opportunity that I can make money doing so. So if you want to check out Republic, I highly recommend it. You can invest with very little. I actually don't remember the minimum, but you don't have to have thousands of dollars to do an investment. You can start with like $50. So it's for anyone, which I think also is so amazing. That's awesome. And again, we'll link all of this in the show notes. So we hope that you've enjoyed our conversation with Rebecca. It has been really inspiring to get to know her and the work that she's doing. Lastly, with Rebecca's conversation, we want to share with you what she has as an offering. So check this out. I've spent my career as an impact investing advisor and really to the very wealthy. And I wanted to um, share this knowledge with uh, everyone regardless of who they were or how much they had. So uh, Give has a platform of online courses. There are three courses. There's kind of a wealth management course to teach you how to manage your money um, with the thinking being, if you know how to manage it, you'll do some good with it. There's a philanthropy course, which teaches you about being um, an informed donor and how to choose organizations Um and then there's the impact investing course, which really walks you through impact investing in every single asset class and kind of every covers all different impact themes. Um, and then we also have a book that just came out. Um, it's available now after a long wait. So that is called Give and Manage Your Money and Make a Difference. And large, it's largely the same as the courses. The courses are, you know, definitely more interactive and have templates and things like that. But there is an option for everybody. That's amazing. First of all, congratulations on your book. That oh, is thanks. awesome. So Thank we'll definitely you. send, uh, you know, we'll have links in the show notes for how to find Give. Um, what was the title again? Can you say that one more time? Yeah, it's Give, How to Manage Your Money and Make a Difference. Mm, boom. That is Rebecca's <laughs> new book, which we are so excited to check out. And I'm also going to check out your courses and workshops because like I said, I come from a history of, you know, family that has struggled a little bit with our relationship to money. And I'm really excited. Um, everyone in my family, my parents, my husband and myself, we're all like really um, changing our relationship to money now at this time in our lives. And so this would be a really powerful time for us to have the opportunity to take some of your courses. So I'm excited to share that with my family as well. So thank you. Awesome. Yeah. You know, I think um, everybody has, we call it like a money story. And I, I called my company give because I wanted to change the conversation with money from what we get to what we give, mm -hmm. what we give to ourselves, what we give of ourselves. And so I, I think if you take away anything from this conversation, it's how to use, um, how to think about money as an opportunity for what, it, you know, what you can give, what you can give to yourself, what you can give to the world. That is so empowering because I feel this is my money story. And I feel maybe many who are listening can, can relate to this as an 
activist or someone who wants to change the world and we we're very aware of you know how unfair it is and how bad things are and how much money and capitalism is fueling climate change and so you have this really strained relationship to money where like I don't want to make money. I don't want to be part of the bad stuff. You know, like I don't want to resonate with everything that's hurting me and the planet, but there's another beautiful story to money, which is all about giving, you know, it's about giving myself the space and the platform to do more work and to give more to the world. Because if I'm constantly struggling for the next dollar to, to feed myself, you know, like I've been there, you know, I, there was a time when I didn't have money for the subways, I would bike everywhere. And I was completely just run dry all the time. And, you know, that's one way of living life, but it's easier to do more good in a world when you have a certain amount of money that you can actually take the subway and be there in 10 minutes and not an hour. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so like there's something to be said about like just shifting the narrative and telling ourselves a different story. And it starts with diving deep into our relationship with money and giving ourselves permission to thrive. Um, and in, but from a place of giving, you know, giving love and giving supports and giving empowerment. So I would definitely recommend people checking out your courses. You are just a host of inspiration and so much knowledge. And I think it's wonderful that you have been working with some of the wealthiest people in the world. And now you're like, nope, I want to empower the everyday person. This should be applicable to everyone and everyone should have access to this. So congrats on your book and on your courses. And I need to get a copy myself so I can add it to my library. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, it's exciting. And I hope that in a small way, it does a lot of good. Oh, I'm sure the ripple effect is so much bigger than you will ever know. It is <laughs> huge and far reaching. And I mean, it's such a beautiful thing. You're in a position to really change people's lives. I mean, you know, money is something that it, it has to do with our safety and our security, you know, and our, our access to things, you know, our, our, our nourishment. I mean, it, it unlocks so much of, of how we can interact in this world from a place of peace and harmony. So, you know, being able to, you know, really help people to come to a place with, uh, to have that relationship with money where, I love that switch of the paradigm, you know, from like, what can I get to what can I give and how giving to yourself is part of that joy. And it's very, um, it just feels, yeah. The word that keeps coming up for me is kind of like joy. It feels very lasting. It feels very, you know, not like the fleeting happiness thing, but like real joy exactly. from that connection. Yeah. Mm. So awesome. Yeah. yeah. I really felt like that was a way almost kind of like meditation that you can find what you really want. You can, it doesn't, it's not just confusion and all these options, but you can really focus into what's right for you. Mm. And I think that that mind frame really helps set that tone. Beautiful. <gasps> I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you. One of the, um, one of the last things that we'll ask you, we love to ask, uh, you know, all the incredible people that we have the, the amazing opportunity to speak with is, are you an optimist in action? And if so, uh, why or why not? I am an optimist in action for sure. And I think because I, I just don't see another way. I get so excited every day by impact investing and the, you know, what it offers for us, for our future. So yes, for sure, an optimist in action.
Next up, we want to share our conversation with Linda Puglio. She's the CEO and founder of Dishcraft, and we talk about how robots can lead us into a more sustainable future, and kind of in an unlikely way. I love this conversation because we combine robots, dishwashing, and sustainability. I think you're going to dig it. Linda is a great example of someone who started a business that not only solves solves a problem for businesses, but she does so in a way that leads us into a more sustainable and enjoyable future. So we started with Linda giving us a lay of the land in terms of how challenging it currently is for individuals and waste management facilities to deal with single-use plastics. It's a crushing problem because we as consumers are trying to do the right thing. And we will religiously, you know, in many cases, put, you know, the proper items into the proper containers and believe that what we're doing is getting recycled or composted or put into landfill. But the crushing problem is most of it lands into landfill because the waste facilities themselves don't have the ability to sort and often can't recognize what is compostable. And so then it goes into landfill and then it lasts for 99 years because <laughs> it simply doesn't compost because it's improperly disposed of. Dishcraft was founded six years ago and provides quality dishware as an alternative to the low quality and highly wasteful single-use utensils, dishware, and containers used in restaurants and corporate environments. Dishcraft is actually a service that takes back all the dirty dishes, washes them using energy and water-saving robotic technology, and then delivers clean dishware back to the restaurants and corporations so that they can offer a better dining experience for their customers and employees while dramatically reducing their waste and carbon footprint. Another aspect of Dishcraft that I think is really cool is the way that you um, have utilized robots to save water and energy. So I remember when I learned, it was recently, it was maybe a year or so ago, I remember learning that running a full dishwasher is actually more efficient than doing dishes yourself. And I always thought, really? Because like, you know, I have the the human power to do it, but it, you know, the energy that it takes to run the dishes, wow, that it really kind of blew my mind. So I thought, oh, that's so interesting. And then when I was, you know, learning more about dishcraft, I learned as much as 75% of the water used in a typical dish room can be saved using your method. And you use one-tenth of the amount of energy. That is incredible. Can you tell us more about that? We're able to do it because first of all, we use gray water for soaking and scrubbing awares prior to sanitizing them. And then that contrasts really sharply with typical dish rooms because in typical dish rooms, they only use hand handheld water nozzles, which spray wares. And those are required to dispense potable water. So they're not able to recirculate the water. So that's a tremendous saving right there. And the fact that we're using cold water is a savings on power. We're also able to really use a more targeted amount of water, which is just enough to release remaining food residue. And so the water use is optimized and no overuse occurs. And that's where robotics really has a sizable impact on minimizing the resources used, which helps tackle climate change. So corporations care really deeply about their zero waste initiatives. And so our work with high volume cafeterias led us to realize how much waste was being created and how central a role Dishcraft can play in solving these issues. 
we're addressing the diner experience by providing a really great high quality wear. So often diners will say to us, wow, this is almost like eating at home and it's such a good experience. And when you contrast that to in many cafeterias, when you're getting this plastic fork that the tines bend as you're eating or it breaks on this fork when you're just trying to eat a salad, it's so great to be able to give this better experience and solve their issues. So we're, we're really excited to see where uh, we can solve operational goals and improve morale and then address the diner experience. It's really interesting too, because I think it's easy for me to imagine, you know, like how Dishcraft would work in restaurants. But when you think about corporations as well and how many people there are and that, you know, it can be something as simple as individuals kind of making a noise about like, look, we're tired of eating on these plastic items, both for the the inconvenience and, and the, the experience of it is not pleasant, but also the environmental impact and how many people truly care about that. And just as a note, like I love these, these instances when, you know, enough individual people caring about something can really make such a big difference. And that you found this really innovative way to solve these challenges, not just for restaurants, but also for corporations. At Dishcraft, we ourselves as a company wanted to be sustainable. And so I went around to sustainability managers at different corporations and I said, how did you achieve it yourself? Because we'd like to learn from you. And so I remember going to one client, a firm, I'm allowed to actually mention who they are. And I said, what had the biggest impact on your sustainability initiatives? Because she had tried things like she changed out the hand blowers, you know, um, in the, like the dryers into in her office from the towels. She had done a whole bunch of different things. And she said, actually Dishcraft had the most impact because prior to us adopting it for food services, 60% of their waste was from all these disposables. Wow. You know what that really reminds me of too, which is something we talk a lot about on this podcast is how we tend to think of these issues as such global issues. And many times we find the solutions to be very local. And, you know, you are, you know, it's a company supplying, you know, it's instead of shipping a container that's going to be, you know, thrown away from a different part of the country or a different part of the world, you know, here's your company that literally comes and delivers clean plates for you and then take them back. And it's all so community oriented and you are employing people and doing so and you're bringing value to the employees at the company. And it also speaks a lot to, Another thing that we love to talk about, which is how those small actions actually have a much bigger impact, because like you said, there's a difference in eating with an actual fork versus a plastic fork. And just that tiny bit of value that you bring to, you know, a a person, an employee, when they go eat at the cafeteria, that can ripple effect in so many ways. They're like, wow, this is an incredible solution. I feel better now not having to throw away and leave a negative impact on the planet. And you never know what that's going to lead to. Like they might feel more optimistic walking at home and they're like, I'm going to not take the car. I'm going to bike tomorrow. Like you never know. Like, and just, I'd love to think about how these small things can actually become the huge movements. And so I wanted to hone in on that because I feel like it's something we don't think about is like, how do we provide clean dishes? And it ends up being the spark of maybe something so much bigger. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It had a big impact on me because I, I have to say when I, started the company, then I started to look at what I was doing at home. And so there's so many times where you drink a glass of water, but you've only had half a glass. 
and you just dump the rest down the sink, but I don't do that anymore. So now I take the remainder of the water and I use it to water our plants. Mm. And there's all these small behavioral changes that people then make as a result. And so we, we hope that we inspire others. You know, we're trying to learn from our customers and then we're really hoping to have this spread. You know, all of these changes can make a real impact on the environment. Yeah. And it's not about being annoying and like, oh, what else can I do with this water? It's like, now how can this empower me and how can I give more and, and, and get more from that? I, I love that. There's a pending regulation right now in California. Can you tell us a little bit about how this might influence your sustainability efforts at Dishcraft? California is enforcing something called SB 1383. It was passed by Governor Brown to limit methane emissions from organic waste, and it goes into effect in Jan- on January 1st, 2022. The regulation requires that all organic waste, specifically food waste, be separated from other waste streams and composted. But in order to ensure that the organic waste does not reach landfills, many municipalities are conducting waste audits because they're trying to ensure that the waste is sorted appropriately. And if they don't, then fines may ensue. And so as a result, all these food operators are looking for solutions to ensure that diners aren't mixing the food waste with disposable wares. And so that's where there's an implication where there's an increased incentive for establishments to adopt reusables as opposed to using single-use disposables. And they're doing so, whether it's for grab-and-go dining or for dine-in service. Often you'll find even in um, micro kitchens and pantries, people will just have a paper cup there uh, for coffee. And so just eliminating that can have a massive impact because municipalities have told us they can't tell what the difference is if that cup is a recyclable one or a compostable one. And because they can't figure out how to sort it, they simply take the entire bag and put it into landfill. And you talked as well about reusable food containers. That's something I've dreamed about. Like I remember, you know, when I was living in New York, walking around and being like, I want to get food out. But then I have this conflicting feeling of, but if I get takeout, then it's, I have more containers at home and all this, this whole process. Um, But you have reusable food containers, so um, how does that work as well in terms of, is that in restaurants and then people bring them back? How does that work? We have, we're offering reusable containers in a bunch of different environments. We supply it to our corporate cafeteria clients and they simply put con- collection containers around their campuses. And so when they go to get their grab and go meal, it's in a reusable container they put in the collection bin and then Dishcraft will take that back and wash it in our centralized hub. We have started to pilot with a restaurant and it's been so successful that they converted the pilot over to a full-time contract. And so their diners are returning the reusables at the restaurant. We're now expanding into meal delivery. We have a couple of clients where they will pick up the reusable container when they drop off their next meal, and then they bring it back to Dishcraft for the sanitization. So we're pretty excited to see how this is being adopted by a variety of different types of establishments. That is so awesome. I'm so excited for this because I feel like 
with, with really with everything, when I go grocery shopping and there's all of these very specialized containers for different products. And I feel like I would gladly bring all of these back to the grocery mm-hmm. store if they would collect them. And then, you know, the same way that, you know, in the old days, you'd have the, the, the milk person doing the delivery and they would pick up the old bottle and give you the new one. It, it, it feels like it should be that simple. And I know that the infrastructure that goes into it is a lot more complicated and, and takes a lot of planning, but I love that you are going on this journey with reusable food containers, because I think that you are at the leading edge of something that in the future, it's going to be the only way we can do it. The amount of, of waste that we're creating in the food system, it's just not sustainable at all. So I'm really excited to get to talk to you that you're actually doing it because I've been dreaming about this. So. <laughs> Me too. I, I was the one who was bringing my own container to like the salad bar and they're like, no, ma'am, we can't do that. And I'm like, please, though, <laughs> it would be so good. Um, yeah, we, we envision a day where cities have all around their cities, different collection systems and grocery stores have an ability to collect, um, all these different reusables. And so if you think today where you typically see in some cities, landfill, recyclable, compostable bins, that there's a fourth bin labeled reuse. Mm -hmm. And if those are widely accepted and it becomes a behavior change, then we think this infrastructure can work everywhere. And you see some environments where it works really well. In India, they're very used to having a tiffin filled at the restaurant and brought back every day. And so you can see examples in other countries of it working. And I think it could work really well in the U.S. with help from cities, as well as just a groundswell of people saying, hey, we're willing to do this because it's the right thing to do. We love talking to Linda about how robots like the ones at Dishcraft can help us create a more sustainable future one that solves real problems for businesses and makes life better for people and the planet. After talking to Linda, I feel much more confident that we won't have to go back in time and stop the robots. (laughs) We asked Linda if she considers herself a climate optimist, and here's what she had to say. I'm a climate optimist. I mean, look, I see the availability of a range of solutions, like the one that we provide at Dishcraft, which help address climate change at all the various stages. So we're, I'm really excited to see what other startups also create to address the issues. We hope you enjoyed this mashup episode where we learned about how money, capitalism, and businesses, as well as our individual financial decisions, can lead us into a more sustainable, regenerative, and climate-optimistic world. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Hey Change podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please share this episode with friends, family, or someone in your network. Also, don't forget to give it five stars in the app so that we can reach more listeners just like you. We love hearing from our listeners, so please tag us when you share this episode on social media. We'd love to connect with you and learn about what you are doing too. You can find where to reach us in the show notes. Before you go, we'd like to invite you to pause and to leave you with this one final question. What does being an optimist in action mean to you?